I'm a rapper. I remember the Ready to Die album leak, like the what was like eight joints or something like that mm -hmm. that had leaked before the album come out. But I want to meet Biggie Smalls. <laughs> How you doing, party people? This is Talib Kweli, the BKMC, the MCEO. You are checking out the People's Party. We are going to have a good time on this episode. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about the culture. We're going to talk about a little bit of politics. And this episode is very special to me because, one, not only do we have Jasmine Lee with us, um, but, you know, we have somebody who needs no introduction, but I'm going to attempt to introduce him anyway. He is a friend of mine. I consider him a mentor. He is an elder statesman. He is a curator of the culture. He is an underground king. He is the trillist of the OGs. He is the Trill OG. Ladies and gentlemen, the People's Party welcomes Bun B. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to come out. You like the, the James Brown dude with the I love kid. It. You know I what I'm saying? It. I got this, Bun. How you feeling? I'm good, man. I'm good. Congratulations. Welcome to Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Thanks, man. I, I like L.A. Mm -hmm. um, my wife loves L.A. Mm -hmm. Shout more, out to Queenie. I, yeah, I, I'm more of a New York person. Me too. But but L.A. got the good <laughs> weed. How you doing, Jeff? But L.A. LA just got the really good weed yeah. and the really good weather. Yeah. And there's no bugs. Mm. Right? Like, I, yeah. don't, I don't think L.A. gets enough credit for that. Yeah. Like, I'm in the South, so it's all... Yeah, if you outside and it's hot, there's bugs. mosquitoes all yeah. day, but that's why we love to come to L.A., because <laughs> we get a room with a balcony, we can just leave the doors open, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying, and get mm -hmm. that cool L.A. breeze coming through at night, mm -hmm. smoke some good tree, and just relax. The first time I ever smoked weed on the internet was on Snoop Dogg's G GGN. Really? Mm. Yeah. And he was like, uh, go ahead and hit this blunt, Quali. And I'm like, nah, my kids are fans. They might look at this and they might watch you. He was like, your kids smoke weed anyway, Quali. Go ahead and hit the blunt. <laughs> you probably do at this point. <laughs> my Which kids is... are adults, by the way, for anybody who's listening. Bad parenting is not what we condone here at the People's Party. But that could be, I mean, if that's the worst thing your kids are doing, I think you're a pretty good dad. <laughs> it's always I, I think I think if that's the worst thing your kids are doing is smoking weed. Yeah, you said they could be on coke yeah, or heroin. Yeah, coke or heroin. Or could both. be pilled out. There's a lot of wild options. Well, you they know, could I be alcoholics. Be, they could be a lot true. of things. It's, it's my job to be the steward, to be the mentor, to be their guiding force. Um, I I don't know if you noticed, but I consider you, there you go, uh, a mentor for me in this business. Boof that. Really? Yeah, yeah. I heard you say that in the intro. Yeah. Really? I, I absolutely consider you a mentor because we've been friends for a long time. Bro. Yeah, but I feel like you were doing pretty good when I met you already. Though. Yeah, I was doing all right. I was doing all right. But, you know, longevity is a different thing. That's uh, true. We met maybe, what, 10, 15 years ago? At least. And, um, you know, the moves that you've made have been hugely inspirational to me. A lot of people look, I, I called you an elder statesman. Um, down south, Texas, but down south. A lot of people in the culture don't know about old school, down south or Texas artists. Who was you listening to hip hop wise growing up? Um, in, in Texas, yeah, specifically. Texas, um, let's start with Texas. Um, definitely in Houston, K. Reno. Mm -hmm. K. Reno is the OG of of all Houston like lyricists, like mm -hmm. rappers. Like he is still the the greatest metaphor conjurer I've ever seen in my life. Um, 
he's still very active as a writer, mm -hmm. even to this day. Mm -hmm. And he's been independent the entire time. So, mm -hmm. you know, he was inspiring me on many different levels. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? As a businessman, as a writer. Um, and his longevity is long. You know, I've, I've been here, what, since 92? Mm -hmm. And he was here as he was seasoned when I got here. Right. You know what I'm saying? And he's still rapping. And that's the funny thing, because I hear people all the time. I remember when... Too short. Used to always talk about he was retiring. Right. Different people talk about they're retiring, and I always look at Cube, and I'm like, if Cube is working, mm -hmm. I have to keep working. Mm -hmm. If Face is working, then I have to keep working mm -hmm. because I can't get lazy when the OGs to me are still active. Right. You know what I'm saying? And aggressively um, putting out music, putting out content, inspiring. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, living life on, on a full level. You know what I'm saying? And that's mm -hmm. what really inspires me now. People who um, have a great home life, have a great family life, um, but still every now and then want to come back and contribute to the culture in their right. own way. You know what I'm saying? I think Cube is a great example of that. And you look at all the different business ventures that Cube has been able to get himself into, and he, he still my comes back. Favorite rapper back in the day. And he's still like, yeah. he's he, still going hard now. He got to get with Houston Cats <laughs> to put out some records. <laughs> I'm with that. You know what I'm but, saying? But it's good to see you know, people from that era. Still active, you know what I'm saying, and still still doing work that inspires, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying. So as long as I see people like that still out there getting it, I feel obligated, right? I can't quit until at least they quit, right? Right, right. Well, you started in '92. You got five mics in the source in 2010. Yeah, that was crazy. So that's albums deep into your career. And I feel it's kind of like you know it was one of those situations how they gave Denzel the Oscar for Training <laughs> Day because they knew. They didn't give it to him for his best work. I kind of feel like that was Trillo G though. Yeah, that was um. Yeah, that was Trillo G. That's a great that album, bro. Which is a good look. I'm not gonna knock yeah. my work. Yeah, you know I, what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not gonna but knock I get my what work. you're saying. But the lifetime you know, achievement award. Absolutely, and I take it. You know what I'm saying. Stores, you know, still represents a lot to me. You know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it did at the time. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying. It still represents a lot to the culture now at this time. And I was happy to be a part of that. You know, that's a very um, it's a very distinct group of MCs that right. carry that accolade, right. you know what I'm saying? And that's one of those things when I came in, I was like, you know, because I never thought about Grammys, I never thought about BET Awards, any of that stuff, but Five Mics in the Source was something yeah. that you kind of wanted to aspire Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And Verse of the Month, true. Now, Verse of the Month, to me, probably would have been worth a little more. I got Verse of the Month. Of course you for did. once. <laughs> once. I got, for the proud, I got Verse of the Month. I never got a Five Mic album, but I did get a, I get, I did get a Verse. You want to trade? I'll trade you. <laughs> Shit, let's trade. Um, here, um... So, well, let's talk about Versus. I was going to talk about something else, but which album was uh, Murder on? Murder was on Riding Dirty. On Riding Dirty. That's three albums in. Yes. That verse by you on that is my favorite Bun B verse. Mine too. I, that's your favorite? So you yeah, know it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I know what that verse is, right? right. That, that, is the, that is the song lyrically that set me apart from every, every one of my contemporaries in the South. And kind of set the tone for how people who didn't know me at that point would be introduced to me. This was the mm -hmm. record that Pimp always wanted to make for me because everything that UGK did was kind of slow and mm -hmm. laid back. A lot of the music we did was slow. And I always was a very aggressive MC, you know? And so I always wanted those faster songs. And I never could get one from mm -hmm. him. And he was like, yo, we're going to give you a song where you can just go off, you know? Because right. I'm like, because you're the main one bragging how good I can rap, but you won't give me something over 80 BPM right. so I can rap. Oh, please, I apologize. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> I'll bring it over here. 
Okay, keep going. I hit the pen. And so, um, but yeah, no, I I realized once it was done, like not when I wrote it, not when I laid it, but when the whole song was done, Mm -hmm. and I realized that nobody really from my region had ever attacked a verse lyrically like that. And I knew that from that moment on, every rhyme was going to be different, right? Everything was going to be different. And it took a lot to get to that level. I found myself amidst a bunch of different MCs that helped me build my skills up. I was around this kid named Rick Royal. Rick Royal was from a group called the Royal Flush. Um, one of the, the greatest pensmen I've ever seen mm-hmm. in hip hop. And um, he, um, he was a guy that I was around and just was lyrically just on a whole other level in terms of transcribing life into lyrics. Mm-hmm. And there's a distinct difference if you look at my lyrical ability from Southern Way to Too Hard to Swallow to Super Tight to Riding Dirty. Mm-hmm. And that was because of the people that I was around and the level of rapping that those people were doing. It was mm-hmm. him, it was uh, Cat Smith D, the Middle Finger. That's why I met the Middle Fingers around the Cat uh, Rick. And so just a bunch of different MCs really attacking lyricism and storytelling on a different level. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued about how, especially Rick, how he was able to construct songs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, there, there's a little bit more technical effort that I could be putting towards this um, that I'm not really taking full advantage of. And so um, pretty much after those days, and that's kind of like where on Super Tight, there's a song called 316s, mm-hmm. which is kind of the beginning of me taking my lyricism a little bit more serious. And murder becomes that verse where everything starts to really fall into place. And I understand exactly how I'm supposed to be rapping. Right. And how I'm engaging the English language. And that it's not going to be like anybody else's style of emceeing. And and that it's going to always set me apart from other people. And that's when I really realized I was nice. Right. Like, I'm like, okay, you're actually really good with this. I was always better than the people around me, but I wasn't necessarily in you know, a group of heavyweight MCs. Yeah, yeah. And by that time, you know, we were on a major label. We were getting the distribution that we wanted. And this was the first album where we had full creative control. So whatever the message was that we were going to send from this album, this one was all on us. And to this day, that's still the best received album that we've ever put out. That's really my introduction to y'all. Um, Ride and Dirty is my introduction to y'all. Um, I was reading up, like, you weren't, an original member of UGK? No, no. The original UGK was Pimp and this cat, um, Mitchell Queen. Mm-hmm. And so they had the actual name UGK first. Right. And then uh, I was in another group with this cat, um, Jalon Jackson. And we were in a group called the PA Militia. And then we all got together and formed a four-man group. But then the other two cats decided they wanted to do other things. So it was just me and Pimp. And... UGK was one of the names that we were working with, but mm-hmm. when we ended up getting signed and the dude was like, um, you know, what what do y'all call? Because we had the song, we didn't have a real, you know, a name. It was like, well, one of the names we were using is like UGK, Underground Kings. He's like, that's perfect. That's perfect. You know? So that that's around Southern Way time. Yeah, definitely. That's the album that got y'all the deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that was, um, that was like recorded in early 91, released in February 92. And um, thank you. And we were we were signed by May. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It was crazy because we dropped the same week that the Crisscross album dropped. The bomb. Yeah, yeah. But we were we outsold them in Texas and Louisiana. Mm. So that's how we started getting people's attention. Like, who is this group that we never heard of that's outselling, 
these artists and, and wholesalers and one-stops and, right. and mom and pops and stuff yeah, like Chris that. Yeah, Chris Cross was a huge... No, this was a huge group. Yeah, they were like, huge. Period. Like, period. Yeah. It was a big deal. They had a big machine behind them, you know what I'm saying? And uh, But we, we were just in the right place at the right time and got momentum and... Uh, you know, had a little bid in war over a weekend, and then, you know, we ended up with Jive Records, and I guess the rest is history. Right. So from then you went to uh, Too Hard to Swallow. Yes. Super Tight. Yeah. Riding Dirty. Pocket Full of Stones comes out. Yeah, yeah. That song kind of took over, right? Yeah, so Pocket Full of Stones was, it was its own different kind of beast as far as a hood record mm -hmm. um, when we first kind of put it out. But then um, when Jive got the contract to do... The soundtrack for Minister Society, they reached out to us and um, it was ill because they sent me like the script, which the script had a different ending okay, than I didn't what know the that. movie had. What can you tell us the secret ending the Minister I'm, Society? <laughs> um I wanna say because I, I don't wanna lie on it, but I I feel like Kane wasn't supposed to die. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And I think I think they wrote it like that and intentionally shot it different because they felt if they would have put Kane dying in the script that they wouldn't have went for it. Right. So I think they wrote it where Kane lived and everything kind of ended happy ever after it, but they shot it differently. But they, I had like three, three screen, three um, three um pieces of the movie. So we had the crib in PA, and they sent us, they sent us this package, and we put in a videotape, and it's, it's the scene in the store, mm -hmm. it's the scene in the alleyway where you shoot the dude over the burger, mm -hmm. and it's like him and Jada Pinkett in the crib. That must have fucked you up. When you we would, it. we would. Bugging, like, right. yo, this is a, yo, what is this movie finna be? I saw the movie theater and fucked me up in the theater. So I must have just had the crib having the advance. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay, so when does this happen? And I'm trying to look through the script mm -hmm. and see where it happens in the movie and what's going on. I'm like, yo, this movie finna be wild. <laughs> this movie finna be wild. But then when I saw it and he died, I was like, yo, mm. this is crazy. I made my mom sit down and watch that movie. Because oh. my mom wasn't watching movies like... They had a lot of cursing and violence in it. I'm like, no, you have. this is one you have to see. You get past the cursing, get past the violence, you got to see what they did with this film. Yeah, that and Boys in the Hood were movies where, you know, people that necessarily didn't have an eye into that world mm -hmm. and that lifestyle, mm -hmm. it gave them a lot of real education about how people were living outside of where they were from, if you weren't from the L.A. Right. You know, because I, I knew a couple of guys from L.A. early in my life, so I was, you know, they kind of talked to me about how the, the streets were structured and how mm -hmm. everything worked, so... When these different movies come out, I'm like, I have a frame of reference mm -hmm. to explain it to people. It was crazy because I met a, I met a, a sixty, and um, a five percenter mm -hmm. like the same summer. Like those, those were my two best friends that summer. And best of both worlds. Huh? Yeah, so it opened <laughs> me up totally to everything that was on the West Coast. So I right. understood West Coast hip hop better. And then everything that was really going on on the East Coast and the different terminologies. So, mm. you know what I'm saying? Shout out to Jay and shout out to Shaquem. I still talk to Shaquem to this day. Okay. Speaking of some gangster shit, um, you have a coloring book. Mm. Yeah. That I sell at my bookstore <laughs> with Shay Serrano. Shay's the man, Shay right? is the man. Shay got a lot of beautiful things going on. Um, he has a lot of books, a lot of situations. Yes. But the Bun B coloring book, tell me about that. All right, so Shay interviewed me a lot, you know what I'm saying? He lived in Houston, and he was getting different writing assignments for different publications outside the city, and he would always interview me. And I was, I was watching his Twitter, and I was like, yo, this is a very funny dude, and we have a very similar sense of humor. And so I reached out. I was like, yo, we should do something about hip-hop together, but it should be funny mm -hmm. or fun. Like, because hip-hop, everybody in hip-hop kind of takes themselves very seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, but I remember somebody saying like you and like Bun, you and Snoop, mm 
are in a really good place. He's like, y'all are kind of where Cube is now to where you don't have to prove you're a gangster anymore. So mm-hmm. you can do kind of anything and play in that space and nobody's going to be like, oh, this he's a sucker. Right, like right, that. right. You know what I'm saying? And um, so we talked about it and originally we had talked about a book and then at a certain point we were like, yo, the idea of a coloring book came up and then Shay was like, no, a coloring and activity yeah. book. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. that's how you get it. That you, was the shit. Right? So, and we pitched it to a couple of different mm-hmm. publishing companies and nobody got it. Mm-hmm. Nobody really got it. He's like, so, so Shay was like, let's do a Tumblr and every week we'll drop a different thing on the Tumblr and we'll get the word out through that. So eventually we ended up getting like 50,000 followers on wow. Tumblr and like a lot of, you know, rotation, a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of momentum behind the pictures and the color and stuff. Mm. And so he pitched it again and somebody bit and they put it, put it out. And I remember within like the first three days of it being out, we got a call from the New York Times. And the Times was like, okay, this could be the first time we've ever had a coloring book <laughs> make the bestsellers list, wow. but you have right. to sell X amount of coloring books. Right. He's like, so I don't know what kind of momentum you got behind what kind of machine you have, but here's, here's, here's what you have to do. And um, it was just really hard to line up the ducks because it, it started going a lot further than we ever thought it was going to go. It ended up in Nordstrom's, like in the special Christmas section, started getting on a lot of people's top 20 Christmas mm-hmm. to have lists and, and it was, I thought it was a great moment for him because he's such a great talent. He's such a brilliant mind. He drew all the, the, the pictures, mm. right? Came up with all the, the ideas. I think the most brilliant thing he did was he did Wudoku. So Sudoku with the nine members of the right, Wu-Tang Clan. Right, That's just that was, genius, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's brilliant because it lives forever because mm. just like Sudoku, you can come up with, you know, uh, yeah. tens of thousands of permeations of putting yeah, that together. Shout it, out he's, to Shea Serrano. I could talk about Shea all day. Shea was a... He was a coach for middle school at the mm. same time all of this was going on. Mm. Such a great spirit, man. Mm. And he loves his kids, too. There's a lot, a lot of people like that in hip-hop. You know, that's really the core of hip-hop. I mean, you a family man, bud. You got yeah. a, you a grandfather. Man, you about know? to be five times over. Five times over. Yeah, could be any day now. That's beautiful. I'm having man. fifth kid. It's, it's amazing, man. I, hip-hop I, is a family business at this point. Well, I never you even gotta... saw, I never saw myself getting this far musically, and mm-hmm. I never saw myself getting this far in life. Right, because mm. as soon as I started to figure out what dating was and like wanting to have a long-term girlfriend, I ended up in this entirely different world, and it just pulled me away from everything. So I started reject- rejecting relationships and commitments and all that type of stuff, especially anything long-term, because of the lifestyle that mm-hmm. I was living. And it wasn't until I met Queen that I was like, look, if I'm going to be with one person, this is the one person I want right. to be with. And this is how you do it. Yeah, then you know, and there was a lot of growing up I had to do because. You know, Queen had kids, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So I had to, you know, not, I'm not just a boyfriend, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things to adjust with having a young girl growing up in the house. But I think we did a good job, man. Our kids are great. The grandkids are great. Everybody's healthy. You know, we're blessed over here. That's beautiful, bro. It's a good transition, too, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a good transition in life to, you know, like now we make music kind of because we want to, not because we have to, right? It's no big contractual obligations that mm-hmm. force me to, to have to go and make music and, and punch the cards, so to speak. So, you know, I'm not phoning it in or whatever. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and I'm finding different ways to make the process enjoyable. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I get to work with friends now. Like the, the first album we did, um, <clears throat> Return of the Trill, um, 
we did with Crit. You know, Crit's right. a good friend. So we did pretty much all of it with Crit. The second album, we just did Trill Static. You know what I'm saying? Me and Static. Good friends. You know what I'm saying? You were a part of that. Great album. You're, you're always around if we need you. Hove called you know, in. That was crazy, right? right? Fat Joe came from the crib because he seen it on live stream. It was it was fun because we didn't expect anything out of it. We just wanted to see if we could like actually make it happen. It was really more of a passion project and just an exercise in hip hop. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? But I feel like I painted myself in the corner now because everybody's gonna want that album in the day. Mm. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, I have a Instagram clip that I didn't post yet. I might just put it in my documentary of um. The moment when everybody listened to Fat Joe first for the first time, and it was just you and him bobbing, and the hook came on, and he starts doing this dance. Yo, oh, that's a Joe's a very, very ill dude. Too, yeah, man. Like in hip hop, Shout out to Fat Joe. in the culture, he's a very yeah, ill man. dude. I say that if you want to get to the root of what hip hop is, you can't get closer to the root than like a Puerto Rican gangster dude who used to be in digging in the crates from the Bronx. That's crazy. Like, that's the most hip-hop shit ever. And that's what I was, my, in the moment, I was like, okay, this was the D-I-T-C Fat Joe. Yeah, that was, right? that record you know? feel like D-I-T-C. It really does. And, you know, we, we didn't think that was, in the moment when we were playing beats, we didn't think because Joe came in and so there was no music mm -hmm. that was attributed to him. Like, there was no, like, okay, Joe's going to rap on this song or whatever. So we're playing him different songs, and based on you know a lot of the music that Joe's known for right yeah. now, we thought he would bite on something that was a little bit more commercial, yeah, he, he, something he, like that. He does records, hit records very well. Yeah, you yeah. know what I'm saying? And, but when he heard that track, he was like, yo, that's the one right there. That's the one I want to rap to. And I was like, okay, we're finna, he, he picked this beat, we're finna get digging in the crates, Fat Joe. Yeah. This is a very, very unique verse we're about to get. You don't get that all the time. That's Most right. people are trying to get... You know, radio pop, pop hit. Fat but Joe, he knew you know? that he had to give you that verse. That's why he drove over there. That's why he was in the crib, like, yo, that's the vibe right there. And that's that's what that's what hip hop is really all about. When you create an environment where MCs just want to rap, right? Yeah. That's what we really wanted to do. At the end of the day, we have to. You can invite people over to rap, but you got to create an environment that's conducive to it. Mm -hmm. Right, you got to put the right people in the room that can be around each other and build off of each other. A lot of people didn't necessarily know each other well, but they knew each other well enough. Right, right, you know. And I just ran into Smoke Dizzle a week ago, well, a week before the NLA. Right, and I just saw him like two weeks before at Johnny Spot. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, and even people like you know Meth, who I'm just now really getting to build a relationship with, but Meth was like one of the first people I called. It's a good you know dude. What I'm saying? And he was like, "Yo, I'm with it." And I had never asked Meth for a verse or anything right. before. And he was like, I'm with it. And the funny thing was he came a day early because he thought it was the he thought it was the day before. So he called me yeah, the day that's before. A good dude, man. And he was like, Yo, I'm outside, bun, what button to push? I'm like, yo, I'm in Houston. We ain't even right. I ain't even there yet. Right. Um, you and me, we got a, that's that's how many records we got together? At least four, right? Yeah, so we got one with K Salam. Right. We just did this one with Static. We got um Strangers with High Tech. Uh, we, have we have Country Cousins. Country Cousins. And we, and have, we have Real Women. Real Women. That's, that's, so that's five, five records. Five now. records we got together. So we got a, a mini EP. Right. <laughs> we should just do Go one. Yeah, you know, we should. Um, something else we got in common is we both smoked with Biggie. Ugh. This is true. I would like to hear your, because I heard about that you smoked with Biggie, but I ain't yes. heard the story. Okay, so we were on promo. Mm -hmm. This is our first promo run. And um, we're at the BMG offices. In Atlanta, mm -hmm. at the time, Chaka Zulu is shout out to Chaka Zulu is 
like one of the guys I don't even I don't even I think he might have still been an intern at this guy. point, right? But he was the guy riding us around, driving us around. So we go to the BMG offices, and the big deal about the BMG situation was the fact that Craig Mack had just went gold. So Flavor in Your Ear had just went gold. Juicy was still, I think, at like 460, 465, something mm-hmm. like that. So everybody in the room is making a very big deal about Craig Mack. Mm-hmm. I'm a rapper. I remember the Ready to Die album leak, like the what was like eight joints or something like that mm-hmm. that had leaked before the album come out. But I want to meet Biggie Smalls. You right, know what I'm right, saying? Right. So we see him over at the table, kind of off to the side, away from everything. We go over and like, yo, Bum B, this my brother Pimp. See you with UGK. He was like, I know who y'all are. I'm like, word. He was like, yeah, the pocket full of stones joint. He was like, from Menace. He was like, I used he to ride that in. all the time. You know what I'm That's saying? That's why he had all, like Houston metaphors in his raps. So he was like, he was like, man, I, I, I fuck with y'all. I was like, yo, we fuck with you. I was like, yo, we finna go outside and smoke if you want to smoke. And he was like, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll come. I'll smoke. So we go out to the car. And he's a big dude. So, you know, Pimp was in the, the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. So I offered him the front passenger seat. He was like, no, I'm going to chill in the back. I'm like, yo, it's a lot more room in the front. Right. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to sit in the back. Right. And so he got in the back seat, and he, he left the door open. And we were like, yo, yo, close the door. We're going to hotbox. You know, right, right. keep the smoking. He's like, no, nah, I got to keep the door open. I need, like, the air or whatever. It, it wasn't until later that I realized that, he didn't want to sit in the front seat because he didn't want anybody sitting behind him. Uh, and he didn't want the door closed in case he needed to bounce because he didn't really know us, know us like mm-hmm. that. You know what I'm saying? I, I, it took me probably probably a couple of hours after the fact. I was like, that's why dude didn't want to sit mm-hmm. in the front seat. And I had even more respect for him as a man outside mm-hmm. of the music. I was like, okay, I see this cat moves in, in a real way out there. But we smoked and we chilled. And he was just a very, very good rapper right yeah, like there's the a best, lot of people natural. a lot of people are going to make rap music and rap songs right mm-hmm. but a lot of us are not really going to be that good and only a few of us will ever be really really great at it. and he's one of the few guys that were really really great at it and this is coming from a guy that's really really good like i'm 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 pretty good pretty with this good, right buddy. you know I'm, I'm not i'm not gonna fuck You're around no i'm pretty good you yeah. know and but this dude was really and for dudes that write and know mm-hmm. what it takes to put a rhyme together and piece words together and really manipulate the English language, you know that dude was different. Still yeah. different than anything that anybody was doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, very organic. And it would have been really interesting. And that's, I think, what people miss the most is that we didn't get to see the evolution of it, right? The growth as you, the maturity, right? Even though he was very mature for his age yeah. and very deep in his thoughts, but it would have been good to see, you know, uh, you know Biggie getting older kids get older being married longer and seeing more of the world you know having traveled all over the world it would have been good to see big's reflection on on the life absolutely you know what I'm absolutely your your story is is more interesting because you got like a real introduction you know what i'm saying like i was working for jessica rosenblum in new york party promoter she right. used to manage john forte um, we used to hang out with like Sino from her, Diggable Planet. Her name always comes up yeah jessica like, was official jessica up. was in the mix she was doing parties with puff um, there was a party at the country club, Biggie and, and Tupac was rolling around together. And I remember it was John Forte's birthday party. Or it was a club they was doing, but it was John Forte's birthday. Um, and so we were just smoking. And it was the type of thing where I was let behind a velvet rope for a second. Right. And I was just sitting in the booth. You know what I'm saying? As a kid, like not even old enough to get in the club at that point. Right. Um, but that's my one memory of smoking with Big. 
Um, That's amazing that you guys got to smoke with Biggie. I think it's pretty amazing, man. It's, you know, it's, I, 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 for me, it's a New York privilege. You was coming right. to New York. So for me, it was a proximity. Like, I felt as a hip-hop artist, a great privilege growing up in New York. And I think New York has oh, been, yeah, sure. you know, we, we, we are, um, we take that privilege for granted sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think, I think the, the, the key thing that New York had as an advantage over everyone was the, the outlets. Yeah. Right? The record companies were based there. Record the companies media, and the, media the public outlets, transportation the media system. Right. Not just the record everywhere. companies, but that we could hop on a train and literally hop on a train and not pay for it. But hop on a train. You and, shouldn't be promoting that. That is illegal I, activity. You can't do it. No, jail. but it was very ill. Cause if I, That's if the only I, way we was able to do it. If I had a problem with my record company, I had to literally get on a plane and fly like four hours. Yeah. Right? And go to the office building and try to get upstairs and all this kind of stuff. But if your A&R was from Brooklyn, you could find him in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Look. And that was the thing that I felt like. And then the other thing was if my A&R is from Brooklyn... And he's got two artists on the table in one budget. Mm -hmm. He's probably going to pick the New York kid over the, yeah, the Southern kid. kid not because of, not even because of talent, though, money. right? I mean, not even because of proximity. I think they just didn't have the frame of reference for UGK. Like many A and R's, you know what I'm saying, fell trying to A and R UGK project, right. right? Like we didn't need any help from a 32 year old kid from the Bronx. Like, what are you going to tell me? about growing up in Port Arthur, Texas. What can you do? This kid makes all the beats. He makes mm -hmm. all the music. We don't need any help. Just right. put me and Pimp in a room. We'll bring you the album back. Just keep right. everybody else out the room. Right. You know? But yeah, y'all, I mean, I, one of the things that I always say to people is proximity is key in life. Right? And, yeah. that, and, and I go through life more and more that it, it makes even more sense. Right? Just being in the right place around the right people and having a line of communication or access to the right people in, in the right places, man, changes everything. You know what I'm saying? I've seen people with real, like, superior talent, right, who just could not, I don't know if you want to say schmooze or mm -hmm. just did not know how to talk to people. Right, networking. You know, ne yeah, they had no networking too. skills. You have to have both. You have to. You know what I'm saying? Like, talent will get you in the room, but networking keeps you in the movement, mm -hmm. right? So... So people come into hip hop and quality. You, I'm, I know you've seen it like I do. People come into hip hop as an MC. Like I want to be a rapper, right? Okay, you want to well, impress other rappers, right? You know, but but maybe your skill set is better built for management, mm -hmm. right? Or promotion, or marketing, or radio. And so people come into hip hop with you know a dream of being this, and the culture says, "Well, we've got that guy right mm -hmm. now, right? Well, we could really use somebody right here, right. and you know enough." from being around certain things to handle this spot right here. Can, mm -hmm. can you do that? And some people made those decisions, and, and they're great people now. Look at Andre Harrell. He's a legend yeah. because he wasn't scared to step away from the microphone. Used to be Jekyll and Hyde. And going to other stuff. I always talk about KP, <laughs> who was a DJ. Mm -hmm. And um, when when L.A., L.A. Reid, you know, mm -hmm. started, you know, LaFace Records, offered him a spot, like, come in, come in on this side. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't scared to do it. And he was able to bring that back to the Dungeon family. And, and right. now he's, you know, he just threw his first festival, right? So it's a skill set. And he still DJs too, right? Not saying that you can't right, still right, DJ. Right, right, right. But sometimes, you know, you're called to things that are greater than what you even think for yourself. And you can't be scared to take advantage of those opportunities. Similar to you in a lot of respects because you uh, are not scared to be a professor. Yeah. You're not scared to go teach. Teach well, the babies. Yeah, I mean... 
look, there's I, I tell people all the time, a lot of my opportunities come because Chameleonaire is busy, <laughs> right? A lot of my opportunities come because you know it's kind of like Harrison Ford and Tom Selleck, right? Uh -huh. Like I got this. I got this move because <laughs> Chameleonaire was busy. So, so Chameleonaire was asked to speak at a, a course on hip hop mm -hmm. and religion at Rice University. He couldn't make it. He said, but I know who, who you might want to, if you're looking for somebody to talk about that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you should probably reach out to Bun B. Mm -hmm. So Professor Penn calls me and asks me if I'm interested. I'm like, sure. And I go up and um, I'm kind of sitting in his office before I speak and I look at the books on the shelf, I'm like, okay, I read that, I read that. This is interesting, okay. Mm -hmm. this, and it's not just religious books, it's some hip hop books too. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, this this could be interesting. Right. And so we speak in the course and we talk for like an hour and a half and it's just very, very fluid conversation. And after the course, he was like, you know, we could really use your input in this classroom. You know, we should talk about you coming in more. And a couple of months go by and he was like, he actually asked me if I would like to co-teach the course with him at Rice University. And so this is more than just kind of popping in and giving up right. a little game, right? This is a very, a very real commitment. Like Rice University is the number one university in Texas, number 15 university in the country. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just like teaching at your local community college. Right, like this right, is right. a very prestigious university. And so my concern was not messing up his tenure, right? He's the most tenured professor of color on campus. So I don't want to come in with my street shit and everything right. that I've done, right? And fuck up his reputation on campus. But then two, the, the other thing is I don't want to misinform the youth because mm -hmm. these are some of the brightest minds in the country that come to this university. You know what I'm saying? Their parents spend a lot of money. It's a very, very big scholarship. If you're on scholarship, there's a lot of money involved right. on, on the line. And we would get kids who were religious students, not like so, because people assume this is a music course. Yeah, but it's not. It's a humanities course. It's a religious course. I went and did it with you. Yeah, yeah. It, so it was Lupe and No Malice, and it wasn't a lot of music talk at all. No, no, and and so it's a different perspective on the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And the lived life within the culture, right? Like not just what you do, but how it affects your life, how you have to adapt some of your life to it how your life has to how it has to adapt to your life and you know what is the ebb and flow of this thing that we do and it's beautiful to be able to have these young minds engaged on this because a lot of these kids they don't even listen to like urban radio right so their curiosity isn't based on little wayne or drake or anything like that they're like what is this right because i hear some of it and it's positive and it's reaffirming and then some of it it's a lot of the n-word and i just don't know what's going on and so we have to basically put everything in its own historical perspective right yes. we have to put the black experience in its historical perspective so before we get to hip-hop we got to get through a lot of music right mm -hmm. and a lot of culture so we start at the negro spirituals and work our way all the way up and so from that perspective, they can see, okay, lifestyle influences, lifestyle influences, lifestyle influences. We're going through blues, we're going through jazz, we're going through soul music, lifestyle influences, all these different things. And this begat this, this begat that. And okay, so that's how we get to hip hop, right? Okay, so Caribbean influence, Jamaican, you know, DJ type of thing. And so, so now we've got that, okay, so here's the music, here's the, the Cross Bronx Expressway situation, right. right? This is how people get displaced, and that's right, how all these cultures right. get there, and this is the beginning, right? And it starts here. It's just a party. 
right? It's just a way to get away, right? But then we understand a deeper way of getting away and how to keep that momentum of of learning to live through your experience collectively, right? Being mm-hmm. unified based off of, yeah, we're at a party, but we're really all at a party because life is kind of fucked up and work right. is hard right. and, you know, where I live is crazy and there's a lot of crime and I just want to go somewhere and just have a good time, mm-hmm. you out. know? And, and God bless Zulu Nation for being this transformative hand that takes these gangs and say, look, if you want to if you want to beef a battle or something, let's put the knives down, let's put right. the guns down, right. and let's do it this way, right? And right. thank God that some people accepted that, you know? And so then that becomes this formative shift, and then it, it goes from from borough to borough to borough, and then from city to city, right? And it we see now, okay, people in New York live like this. I've never been to New York. I don't know nobody from New York. Sound like they're going through what I'm going through. Then you hear people in Chicago and people in Florida and people in L.A. And then y'all hear people from Texas. And then, you know, Nelly starts talking about St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And you start to, you know, get an idea of this world that you live in. So when the ghetto boys make, you know, the world is a ghetto, everybody gets it. Yeah. Right? Because at that point, we have information about all these other cities. And we find out about the crack is there, too. We didn't know crack was. We thought that was just here. Right? We thought that was... You know, and so you start really understanding how this world really, really works, right? right. And so we've been able to educate people about the fact that, yes, there are other people's lives who reflect yours, but then there are also people who have beaten the struggle, too. We so just talk- you can, we just you can play it how you want to play it. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. We just, remember we were just talking about that the other day, how social media gives you a glance into other people's lives, mm-hmm. whereas before you didn't really know what was going on across the world because you didn't leave your little area. It's the same thing with hip-hop. You started learning more about everybody's lives because you started hearing, like, oh, exactly what he said. Their life is just like mine. The problem is is that people can present their life in any way they want to with social media, right? And that's can, not really what... Yeah, right? And this was really about... It was always about clarity, right? Mm-hmm. About giving people a deeper understanding and being like, yo, this is exactly what happens in my mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, for real. Like, I don't know if you've been here, but this is the kind of shit that happens yeah. in my neighborhood. Hip-hop is uniquely regional like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we connect with people when we reflect through their struggles. Like, yo, like, I've never been there, but I, yeah, my, I had roaches in the cereal box. When Ghost makes that song, yeah. everybody cries because if it wasn't you, it was your cousin, but yeah. you knew that person, yeah. you know? And so for somebody that had always been so flamboyant and seemed to have everything figured out, such a great writer and part of this amazing collective Wait, group you're talking of about people. Ghost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you hear his his life and you'd be like, man, I, rem- I remember being down bad like that. Yeah. And, you know what I'm saying? My mom left my dad and we had to go to my auntie house. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And stuff like that. So... So you you get it, you know. So hip hop can be as personable as it as it wants to be, and sometimes as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's these shared experiences that bring us all together. You know what I'm saying? That's why the biggest hip hop song I think of all time is "They Reminisce Over You." Right. You know what I'm saying? Because everybody finds themselves in that unique position of, man, I love that. I love my boy. Mm-hmm. I love my girl. I hate this. This is gone, but. I don't want to always cry about it. I want to remember the good things right. about it. And I want to remember, you know, and then when you lose friends and you lose family, just like the beginning of the song, the, you know, the first two verses is really just reflecting on family mm. and what life is about. And that's what you do when you lose people and you really understand what death is about. You start to really deal with your own mortality. Then you, you start putting your life in perspective. 
You know what I'm saying? It's one of the best written songs ever, period. Absolutely. And the emotion hits every time. Every time you hear those horns, you go right yeah. back to that same place. P-Rock, uh, that's my favorite hip-hop sample of all time. Uh, he really nailed it with that, but CL Smooth, he just... Yeah, man, that's a great record. That's and I talked to CL record. for the first time like a week ago, and I really... It was very awkward because like Static was there, and he was like, yo, here's CL Smooth, and I had never talked to the brother. And I didn't really... I, very underrated writer, right? right? Very underrated. Such a, such a unique way of speaking, mm -hmm. right? Never got his real credit for that, mm -hmm. you know? And I didn't even really know how to express that in a FaceTime video. Right, right, <laughs> you right. You know, for the first time ever conversing with the brother. But no, it's, he's, he literally wrote one of the greatest songs, not just hip-hop songs, but one of the yeah, greatest songs Any genre. ever written, ever, you know? Yeah. So my father is a professor, too, at um, oh, wow. TSU. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, he teaches music in Houston. But um, Houston has really good food, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Houston so, is one of the most diverse food food cities in the yeah, country I love right eating now. in Houston. It's I've never food. been. But when I visit, what are, like, the five places I need to go? Well, so there's a lot of different food in Houston that's specific to Houston. Um, barbecue is a big thing in Houston, so you're definitely going to want to go to like Burns Original Barbecue, um, that's like black barbecue, okay, right? And then there's Burns, right? Burns. That's like real, real hood, right? Barbecue, um, smells up the whole street. Right. I mean, what for else? Sea, for seafood, seafood, <laughs> like most people are gonna go to Papados. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, Papados Papado's my favorite. Cajun Creole kind of food. Uh, Saute crab fingers. That's. Oh. Queenie likes those. That's that's the one. That's the meal right they there. They got the lobster egg roll. Lobster shrimp that's good like too. egg roll move now. But not every Papa Do's got the sauteed crab fingers, and I'm upset with that, man. That's a regional thing. Yeah. yeah so Because yeah, it's got to be closer to the coast. Because Papa Do's in Atlanta and uh, Ohio, but only the Texas one got them crab fingers sauteed. Yeah, because otherwise they're going to be frozen, and you want that yeah. fresh. Yeah, yeah. You definitely want that fresh. From the Gulf. Um, fried chicken. I would say go to Frenchies. There's the new Frenchies oh, in Third Ward. There was one in, in, so the location was there for many, many years, probably 30 years. And then they kind of bought the block because they're redoing that whole, obviously they're gentrifying mm -hmm. another hood in America. Mm -hmm. And so they moved them across the street. And But it's it's a brand new building. So if you come to Houston, you should definitely go to Frenchies. Um, Mexican foods, you're going to want to go to the original Nifas on Navigation. Right, that's kind of where... I, I want to say the, is that where the fajita was born? I want to say. Oh, I love fajitas. So fajita is an American thing. Yeah, for me, fajita is a Tex-Mex thing. Okay, Tex-Mex, right. right. I'd rather have American Mexican food than What is American Mexican, Mexican food? food? Like That's Taco Bell. I need cheese you just say for my Taco tacos. Bell? I'm sorry. Did you just do, do a Taco Bell commercial you just, on my, oh, you no, just, my show? I feel just like you just again. alienated every Mexican listener and viewer Yo. of this podcast <laughs> talking about straight American from the record, sir. I can't help. I eat what I eat. What is, what is American Mexican I, food? That's like I want some Italian Japanese food. Like, I don't even know what that means. Here, you go to the, the food trucks, and they have just the meat, cilantro, and onion. And I'm like, where's the lettuce, the tomatoes, and everything That's else, a traditional street Mexican street taco. Oh. That's Mexican. That's Mexican. Yeah, that's yes, Mexican. That's what I want, that's the American, American one that has all the extra stuff in it. You want Taco Bell. <laughs> you, want, you want Taco Bell. So you're gonna get all the cheese and and the onions and everything, but I don't know if you're getting meat. That's yeah. the problem. I know, but you know you don't what, don't what you don't know doesn't kill you. This weed is crazy, by the way. It is. It is. Yeah, L.A. man. It's good. To, it's good to have proximity. Like I said, proximity. Proximity. Is key. Proximity is key. 
Tell me about your proximity to Chad. It was it was very close. Probably my first like long term friendship, mm-hmm. right? Because I had older brothers, but two of them, you know, I had three older brothers. Two of them were in and out of jail, and the other one had a bunch of kids at a young age. So mm-hmm. he was constantly working, working, working to take care of his kids, and. You you've been you were in a group, right? Mm-hmm. So you know that there's only certain things that you and your counterpart really understand. There's right. things that you guys went through together. And as you get older in life, there's only certain people you can go to about certain situations. Only certain people really understand on a very base level mm-hmm. what it is. Because it's not really easy being a public figure. I won't even say an entertainer or whatever. It's not easy being a public figure. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there's there's a lot of complexities that go into how you have to present yourself to the world and then kind of come back down to earth, you know what I'm saying, at, at any given time. You know, you got to rise up to the clouds and be whoever it is that they believe you could be and then go right back to who it is that you know and the people around you know that you are. And sometimes that could be a conflict of interest. And, you know, he and I, you know, there were times where I didn't want to do this shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And he would have to, you know, reassure, reassure me about this shit that we, you know, this is a higher purpose. And vice versa. There were times he didn't want to do this shit anymore. And I had to tell him, you know, this thing is actually bigger than us now. UGK is not just a group. It's a movement. Like, people are living through right. us, you know For what I'm life. saying? And we have to, the victories that we that we achieve mean a lot to a lot of people. And that was something that he held very, very close to his chest. Because nobody loved UGK more than he did and that's you know and that was really the the heart and soul of the group and the movement and it was it was amazing to be a part of it you know what i'm saying i've written a lot of rhymes i've done a lot of songs but there's a distinct difference if you listen to the songs where pimp and i are rapping together right there's a whole other level of lyricism that i go to because there was there was no one else i was more comfortable engaging with in the process than him and that was something that we shared for many years. And once we figured out, you know, how to make it work, and that it was, it, you could do it blindfolded mm-hmm. at that point. And we had so much fun. We never argued about music. We never argued about lyrics. We never stepped on each other's toes. It was beautiful because we were the perfect yin and yang, right? We didn't have the same kind of friends. We didn't like the same kind of women. Mm-hmm. We didn't wear the same kind of clothes, right. cars, none of that. So we never bumped heads on anything. We were very, we were very individual, and never felt like we needed to wear matching jackets or right. shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like people really love you because you're you. They love me for me, and we don't need to mess with none of that, right? Just keep being you. Sometimes I agree with it. Sometimes I don't. But I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get in the way. If that's how you feel. I'm 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 with you 100. percent Ain't that the secret of making good music? It's, it really is. You gotta you gotta just give over to the process, mm-hmm. right? And to the other people, right? And allow them to go as free and as far as they fucking feel, right? Because it may not hit the right note with you, but as you travel through the world, you realize that they're actually hitting other people, right? Right? Because that's not maybe the message that you're meant to get from them. That's not maybe the wave that you're meant to connect with them. But you know that person is special, mm-hmm. right? And you know, it's, you know, sometimes you can get in a group, you can be like, I remember with Pimp, I would be like, he gave having things to Big Mike, right? It was a beat that he gave to Big It was the mm-hmm. first beat 
that he had gave like to another rapper that I wasn't there when he gave him the beat. And I was like, fuck did you get that man that beat, man? That is a badass song, right? I'm like, he was like, man, because I want that man to win. I want right. to give that man the best I got. Mm. I was like, man, but that shit would have been so that's good. That's a great but, song. You know, he was like, man, I'm telling you, man, that's what Mike needed. Mike asked me for something jamming. I gave him what he needed. I can make this shit all day, man. Don't worry about that right. beat. Right. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. But next time, just let me know ahead of time before you get somebody a beat. Because I was like, you know, I was, I knew he was special. I knew what he was doing was special. And every time he did it, it was special. And I kind of wanted it. I, mm -hmm. I was very comfortable having that all to myself. I was the only person rapping at Pimp C Beats for a long time. Then once other people started to recognize the genius and come and get beats, I'm like, hold up, that was my thing. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? But I don't he, think he, people he, understand really how ill he was with the beats, especially uh, really people in hip hop. Because people didn't know that, right? People mm -hmm. didn't know that Pimp produced a lot of the UGK records. You know what I'm saying? 90%. Of of something that you heard me and Pimp rapping on was was produced by Pimp. Right, and he's a not just the, making beats; he's playing yeah, instruments. No. Man, we had we had a B three and a Leslie. We had like a whole band in there. We had a B three and a Leslie, uh, and Hammond in 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 the in the living room with a bass player and a guitar player, and he's he's playing the drums live on the drum machine, mm -hmm. and we're just you know just jam sessions. You know what I'm saying? In the same house we sell the weed out of. It's right. very very crazy. <laughs> And, but he was, you know, I mean, even Riding Dirty, right? Like, the title song, we were just talking to somebody about that the other day. The title song on Riding Dirty was West Montgomery, right? So he's right. pulling from very, very deep, distinct places musically, but sonically being very true to the sound that, that he's trying to, to create. He right? flipped that sample. He, no, I, I was like, I was like, and I remember hearing the record. I remember there was this time where he was I love that West through, Montgomery record. Like, he through flipped jazz. That's, a, that's where... Um, um, the jazz era is where like uh, it's supposed to bubble and different songs like that kind mm -hmm. of come come into play um, in our soundscape and and it was just amazing to be like how could he take that which is nothing like that at nice for it to be like that and we finna talk about this shit right on this record right. this finna be crazy people finna lose their minds but it was always he was always ahead of the game there's a lot of singing, right? Like kind of what Drake and Future and mm -hmm. what a lot of guys are doing yeah, now. Yeah. There's a lot of that in Pimp C. Yeah. This, you know, his influence, continu his influence continues to live on right here, man. I was very, very blessed to have had him as a partner in this music game. I've heard him described as the Tupac of the South. I believe that. I think if you look at, at Biggie as being this, this Greek tragic figure, mm -hmm. right, for the East Coast and Pac being that for the West Coast, then you almost have to look at Pimp, Pimp C, C right. as that for the South. You know what I'm saying? Um, the the you know you know Biggie's in his prime when he's when right. he dies. Tupac's in his prime when he dies. We have the number one album in the country, Grammy nominations, right. and everything when Pimp dies, right? Right. So like I say, it's these Greek tragic moments where people rise to such great heights, and then you know the see. That was always the crazy thing about Pimp. For, for for maybe two, three years, a lot of us still spoke of him in the present term because you couldn't really wrap your, your mind exactly around right. the fact of someone who was so alive mm -hmm. wasn't alive anymore, mm -hmm. right? And he was always, his opinion and his thoughts on things were always kind of taken into consideration, you know, he without even really like thinking of it. He was considered like a moral compass. He was, and he had a... Which is had, interesting, because he's pimp. He's talking about pimp shit, right. pimp and gangster shit, but people looking at him as like, what would Pimp C do? Well, I mean, there were moments, and this is very funny that you say that, because 
there would be moments where we would talk to Pimp about something and he would look at the picture of Tupac on the wall. Mm. And he made a lot of decisions based on what he thought Pac would do right. in a situation, right? So his moral compass is very genuine because of the who he's looking to right. for inspiration. That's the line. Right, you know? And he used to always mess with my kids because in the videos he would always be on his phone in a video. <laughs> and my kids was like, Uncle Pam, who are you talking to? <laughs> and he's like, I'm talking to Screw. But Screw had already passed away, mm. right? He's like, I'm mm. talking to Screw. They, my kids would just... And they had to just back up for a minute, right? Because they didn't understand that. And they like. And as my son got old, my son was like, man, I'll never forget when that man said that. Mm. He was like, he was like, that's what I do. He said, I take pictures in my phone now. He's like, like who you on the phone? I'm talking to my Uncle Pimp. Talking to Pimp. You know what I'm saying? That kind mm -hmm. of a thing, man. It's beautiful. Um, you talked to me once about how Pimp C, so on a national level, obviously Big, Big Pimpin' was a huge record. Oh, of course. And it That's was, what I knew about UGK. Yeah, that record introduced the world to UGK on a lot of levels. Right. Um, Jay-Z being... Jay-Z, it's funny that you tell that Biggie story. I never heard that Biggie story, but it makes sense because Big, you know, uh, not from Houston, but I rap a lot. Like, Big was Absolutely. very in tune with... He was a hip-hop fan. Um, oh, you don't get that good without loving it. He loved it. Right. So he's, he's, he's the type of dude, like... At that age in my life, I'm reading the Source magazine. I'm reading every advertisement. I'm not just reading the articles. I'm reading the ads. I'm reading the, you know what I'm saying? I know the, the whole magazine inside and out. Jay-Z was paying attention on that level. Absolutely. And so he reached out to y'all. but Well, Clark put him on. Clark says he put him Clark on. Clark Kent. Absolutely. Okay. Which Shout doesn't surprise Clark Kent. Which doesn't surprise Yeah, Clark me. knows what the fuck he's talking about at all times. Right. You know what I'm saying? He's one of my favorite people. And, and um, that's where Chaka Zulu comes in again because whole Chaka reaches Zulu out to Chaka again. Zulu. Okay. For the, that's where he gets the numbers from. Okay. So, excuse me. I heard that Pimp C maybe wasn't feeling that record. No, nah, he wasn't. He made it very clear. Okay. Like he did not want to so rap. There wasn't no maybes. Yeah, no, nah, no. Nah, he wasn't. The funny. <laughs> so he was actually supposed to be on just a week ago, mm -hmm. right? When um, Jay Z and Too Short. He's supposed to be on that record before, but um, Pimper just bought a brand new house and just put a uh, full studio in. So he told Jay Z, "Yo, come to the crib and we'll do the record. Fly down to Atlanta, hang out. We'll do the record." And Jay was like, "This was in the middle of the East Coast West Coast beef." And Jay was like, "Yo, I'm not leaving New York right now." <laughs> right. And this and this is also before. Uh, Pro Tools and flying beats right, right, back right, and right. forth. So if you wanted someone in your album, they either had to come to physically where you were and record on your reels or you had to send reels across the country like on Delta Dash or something like that, right? Because right? FedEx and UPS wasn't some, really... Sending reels on Delta Dash? Wasn't, it wasn't popping know. like that. <laughs> you have to really have been in the music industry yeah. to really understand what I'm talking about. This is how this stuff got done. Now it's just an email. Mm-hmm. Right or even a text, you can get a you can get a two track instrumental from from a text right now. Yeah, my daughter be doing that. She just walked in. But they were like, you know, they weren't. Neither one of them wanted to leave, so that record never got done. And then it came back around, and we ended up doing big, the big bimper record. But he was just very concerned because at this point, he had gotten his music right the way he wanted it. Right, he had a very clear idea of how he wanted to be received, and he felt like we achieved that with Riding Dirty. And this was so far removed from what we were doing, mm -hmm. not just sonically, but thematically, this whole idea. It was just very different. And he was like, I'm not opposed to doing a record with the man. I wanted to do the last record with the man. Mm -hmm. But why it got to be this record? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and the other thing is, you know, he's a producer. He's like, yo, let me, if you want to do a record with UGK, right. let do, me do, do a UGK beat. record. Yeah, come do a UGK record. Yeah. But 
you know, I was like, look, this is a really great opportunity, and I think we'd be crazy to not do this record with this man. You know, it's some real bread on the table for one, and I think this is going to open us up to a whole new audience. People get to see who we are, what we do. Yeah, but this is what they're going to see. Right. They're not going to see us the way we do us. They're going to see us like this. Mm. I don't want people to get it twisted. He had a very... He had a very good a visionary. No, you know, he, he Pimp's whole thing was, you know, we had lots of opportunities to sign with, with mm-hmm. record companies and be a lot of people rap a lot. Uh, Bad Boy, No Limit, Cash Money, and all of that. And Pimp mm-hmm. would always say, man, why go be number four over there? Or number five over there? Number Even number three over there mm-hmm. when we number one right here with right. us. We're going to always be number one with us. Right. And, again, you know, he had a, a real idea of how he wanted to be received and how he wanted to really represent what life was like and the kind of real-life decisions that people had to make mm-hmm. in this world that I think people didn't really, you know, people didn't really have that bird's-eye view on what the drug dealer does after the drug deal is done and the money is counted and he goes to bed. Like, what are people dealing with when they go to bed at night? Because mm-hmm. everybody go to bed at night, mm-hmm. right? And everybody can't just sleep comfortably after they do some fucked up shit. If you've done fucked up shit, you know it's not that easy. You don't just shoot somebody and go home and go to sleep. Don't really work like that. Mm. Um, you know, so he wanted to to deal with those people, to be, have an outlet to deal with those demons, mm. right? And not be scared to go to God and ask for forgiveness and, you know, praise some a higher power because we're all, you know, we're all works in progress, right? So never lose that and never think that you can get so far away from God that you can never go back. That was really at the core of that shit. That's the life you try to live. Then look, this is what it's like. If you finna go out here and sell dope, people will try to rob you. People will try to kill you. Not everybody wants to pay for dope, Mm -hmm. right? Some people want to get dope in other ways, and you got to be prepared for that. Right. And if you're going to do it, do it like this, because when you do it wrong, you kind of fuck up the whole system, and that's how people get really get killed, and that's what really fucks up everything and bring the police around, and that's when crime becomes unorganized, right? Mm. All these different kind of scenarios that people around him that he knew growing up were really dealing with. And so he wanted to have like a musical outlet for people to go ahead, you know, and think about it. So yeah, we would do records about partying and all this other crazy shit, but then also not be scared to confront the elephant in the room. Like what does, you know, cause most of us in the South, we growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. We're growing up in Baptist churches, Methodist churches, that kind of a thing. Uh, but we really believe in God, right? But mm-hmm. sometimes we can get detached from it, and you can use fucked up preachers and prosperity pastors or whatever to to, mm. to make an excuse for not going to church. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't excuse you not from connecting with a higher power, mm-hmm. right? So at some point, you still got to talk to somebody about all this heavy shit that you're going through, which happens at night. Right. You know? Um, you just had a situation that could have been very traumatic. It, it was uh, traumatic. Tra- it was traumatic. Yeah, my wife is still very traumatized by Yeah, it. man. Um, when when I spoke to you about this home invasion, right? and I spoke to you, how long had it happened after when I spoke to you? Probably was the second day after. Second day after. Um, you said to me that you were so glad that you did not kill this man. Yeah. And you said that because you you were essentially saying to me, you were talking about your spirit. Yeah, you were talking I mean, about your karma. Because in the moment, I really want, I was really trying to to kill this man, mm. right? Because of the 
you know, the, the thing I'll never forget is hearing my wife's heart, voice in like this deep fear mm. in her voice. And I just really felt, I've never felt more violated in my life. Not because of what's been done to me, because I've had guns in my face. I've had crazy shit happen to me before. But to think that you could do this to my wife, right? And again, he didn't know she was my wife in the moment. This mm -hmm. was a, a random attack. But still, I know this is my wife. Yeah. And um, I also know that certain men freeze yeah. in these moments, right? And I reassure my, I, after the attack, I told her, I was like, I don't know if you know, but every night I go through this scenario. Every day I think about if somebody comes in this house to fuck with us. Mm -hmm. I will do what I need to do. Absolutely. You will be safe. I don't know if things you see me because I watch a lot of The Office and right, West right, Wing right. And, <laughs> and shit like that. And right. I go see all the Marvel movies. Right, I don't know. Right. And, you know, my wife see me, you know, get into scuffles, but mm -hmm. no gunplay. She hasn't right. been privy to any of that since we've been married. And so, but I never want her to get it twisted. Like, I will protect you. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I will. And my thing was. The violation comes in because she never answers the door, right? I never let my wife answer the door because if there's a threat coming, the threat has to see me first, mm. right? And I'm always prepared. I'm ready to, to address the threat in the moment. No problem. But that's the thing that I can't get back from that moment is the fact that in the moment she had to address the threat and she had to do what I'm willing to do, which is put her life ahead of mine. Mm. Her whole thing is in the moment, she thinks this guy has come to get me. Okay. She doesn't know it's random when it's happening. Mm -hmm. So she thinks this guy is coming to get me. So her thing is, I don't have a, a gun, but I know Bun can get to the gun. So I have to do whatever I need to do to stop him from going upstairs before Bun gets to the gun. Mm -hmm. So if he kills me, that's fine. I know Bun is going to kill him. Mm -hmm. That's what's in her mind. Right. She shouldn't have had she to. She should not have had to take a she, deal she should with not that have had to deal with that. Yeah. And that's the trauma and uh, that that we have to work on with her. You know right. what I'm saying? And that's all I want her to do is to is to get right, you know, from this moment because no no person, but specifically no woman should have to go through this. If I hadn't been there, I, I don't know if he would have tried to take advantage of her. You said you was in the basement? Well, she, there's a th we lived in the three-story spot. Mm -hmm. So she was on the first floor and I was on the second. Mm -hmm. But the gun was on the third. So I had to get up to the third and get the gun and get back down mm -hmm. to the first floor. And when I started coming around the corner of the second floor to go to the first floor, I couldn't hear her anymore. And I didn't know what had happened. And so I, I made sure that, that there was a bullet in the chamber and she was right there kind of like cowering at the near the door and she was begging me not to go outside but this is the primary responsibility i have right. once i take you as my wife right the varying levels of how i provide for you that may happen you may have good days and bad days and all that kind of shit but the primary thing that i have to do as a husband is protect you mm -hmm. that's it right if i give you a nice house and a nice car and jewelry and all that shit well that varies right we'll figure that out some some people are doing better some aren't but at the very least, I have to protect you as a man, like in this world. And so, you know, she she knows that I protect her, but and I also know that she'll protect me, which she did. And so yeah. we're just working working through it. It's a process. Anybody that goes, you know, having a gun put to their head, mm -hmm. being told I'm going to kill you if you don't do this and don't do that, and, you know, it's that's a lot for her to deal with. Mm. Yeah, man. Um, you being from Texas... Uh, guns are a lot more part of the culture. 
Oh man, yes. In a lot of other places. Well, it's allowed to be a part of the culture, mm-hmm. right? Like we're open carry, mm-hmm. you know. So you know, my my lawyer said, and you know, when we were did the radio interview, you know, it was like if I had done what I did in Houston in New York. I'd be in jail. That's what I was thinking, because as a New Yorker, you have to make a conscious decision to sort of involve yourself in just even knowing gun laws and knowing about it. I feel like right. in, in Texas, there's more of a chance of you being raised to know what's up. Yeah, and that's why I didn't shoot the guy when I saw him outside of the house, mm-hmm. because I already know once he leaves my house, he's no longer the threat. And I go after him, right. I'm now the threat. How right. important to you? How important do you think it is for people, especially black people, to understand gun laws and to know really, not just gun laws, but just their rights um, dealing with the law. I think it's it's very important because unfortunately we're, we're the group of people that will often find themselves in a confrontation where a gun will come into play, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're gonna carry a gun, right, and you know that at any point, like what happened to me at my house, right, was very, it was a random act, right. it wasn't, a threat that was coming directly for me, but the threat found me, right? So I believe in karma, I believe in positive energy and all of that stuff. But again, this wasn't somebody saying, I'm coming to hurt Bun. This was a random person trying to do whatever they could do in the moment. And so you have to be prepared to protect yourself, but then also be very smart. I remember when I talked to my mom about it, I, I called my mom and said, Mama, sit down, I gotta tell you something. Right. I say, I'm a first off, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. We all right, everybody's good. Somebody tried to rob us today, and I shot him. She was like, where, where, where did it happen? I said, it happened at the house. You shot him in the house? She, oh, I said, right. yeah, okay, okay, okay. So yeah. you didn't shoot him like outside? No, I said, no, he was in the, in the house, in the car. Oh, okay, okay, so you're probably not going to go to jail for that. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, but y'all all right, though. That's some you Texas know? shit right there. You know, so she, even my mother, who has never had to shoot a gun, God, you know, I hope she, she never knows. has she had to. The knowledge. But she already knows. Like, you know, she, my, my brothers, unfortunately, were not the best kids growing up, got mm-hmm. into a lot of stuff. So, unfortunately, my wife, my mom is very, very familiar with the uh, penal system right. and the laws that apply. Right. So, once she knew I wasn't harmed, she just wanted to know if I was in the right or not. Right. She raised me right. Oh, yeah, yeah, she did. Yes, she did. Um, what are your feelings on the NRA? I don't think that you need to be a card-carrying member of the NRA to want to own a gun mm-hmm. to protect yourself, right? I feel like there are a lot of things that the NRA stand for that I don't necessarily stand for. Mm-hmm. I feel like at times they do try to manipulate and pervert that particular amendment. But that being said... I've always had protection for my family. I don't need an amendment to tell me <laughs> right. what I need to do to protect right. my family. I've always, you know, understood the environment and the element out there. And you have to be prepared for these things because it's some at some point something's going to happen if you're black. At some point, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, it's a very unfortunate thing. And I know some people out here have no frame of reference for what I'm talking about. But as a black man, you just, you anticipate, mm-hmm. Right there being a wrongful confrontation. You know, we walk past brothers in the street. If you don't get that head nod, you don't know what's going to happen. Right, that official you know, black man head Right, nod. if you don't get that, just, that <laughs> right. just to let you know I'm not a threat. I'm right. not me either, That's brother. interesting, you know? too, because I, I, as a black man, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I never framed it like that lets you know I'm not a threat. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's what, what that lets you that's know, exactly right? That's what it is. It means I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't have any problem acknowledging you. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
I'm not for, maybe I'm not finna dap you up and all of that, but mm-hmm. you're not a threat. I'm not. A, I don't. I'm not that's, a threat. That's, that's really yeah. what that's saying. Like, what's yeah. up? That's what's up. Okay. Well, he he's not finna try nothing. He, right. And I'm not finna try nothing. So we both good. That's right? interesting. And it's very comforting. Wow. It's very comforting. And there's those very small gestures in the moment, one on one or in group settings, where mm-hmm. black people can acknowledge that, you know, not it ain't me. Me either, right. brother. You right, know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Kind of a thing. Man, you that's know? beautiful, man. Um, I want to thank you right now, give you your flowers while you're here, um, especially for having me on that last UGK album. Oh, man. That's one of the milestones of my career, to be on that UGK album with you and Pimp C. And I mean, even, you know, you know, in Pimp's verse on Country Cousins, he raps about you introducing him to Blackstar. So you're Which very, is a true story. I know. Which is true. And I'm going to tell you, this... He didn't receive everything the same way. Right. Right? There were a lot of people I was like, yo, Pat, man, you need to listen to this. <laughs> right, right. Man, get this shit out of my car. <laughs> but he was receptive. That monkey man. shit. Yeah, he was receptive. You know, but, uh, shout he out to Corey being... Moe, too. I meant to shout out Corey Moe because that's the homie, and I put out music with him. And of I course. met him. I met him through Dave Darr. But really? I met him through my engineer, Dave Darr, who's, you know, shout out to Dave Darr, but I got to know him through y'all. But you've always been a very genuine person with me, right? And, you know, you're one of the more dependable people in my life, Mm -hmm. right? So if I have something that I need done, but it's very, you know, I I need it a very, because I don't call you for just anything, right? Right, When I call you for a record, it's a very specific theme that we're talking about. And I feel that you can bring over the emotional, God, it's very hard to talk about what you do. (laughs) <laughs> right, it is. No, it is right because because you're a student of structure, mm-hmm. right? You're a very disciplined writer. You know that there's a space that you exist in. There's a flow that you own, right? Mm-hmm. That that's your very own. And so it's really all about how deep do I need to get into this subject? Is mm-hmm. this surface, or do I need to get deeper on this? Right. So it's always interesting to see where you tend to go because you're very informed about a lot of things. So, again, we can do this on a very surface level, or if you think the people, like, you, I imagine that you have to do songs with people and be like, okay, am I going to be over his bass's head in this mm-hmm. moment? Or do I need to give them, do they need to hear this? Right? It's a very unique position that I imagine you find yourself in because you're very open to working with everybody and you have worked all over the the genre. And so, you know, but again, you're, you're very, very informed. So if I tell you, look, we're going to do a song about all wives, you know what I'm saying? We're going to do songs about the women and all that. Right, right, right. right. Which is what you told me. Right. And you know how I feel about one woman. So, you know, I'm going to go there. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to be able to, Oh, I can go all the way in. I can say all the good and the bad things and the crazy things that make love beautiful. That's one of my favorite records. And it's, and it's because you're, you're, you're allowed a freedom on that record. And I am too, because mm-hmm. sometimes I find myself in a position, like I did a couple of songs with people and I'm like, it's a good record, but I shouldn't have put them on that record because mm-hmm. I shouldn't have asked them to go there because that's not really where they go, right? I like, to, I like to challenge myself and I like to challenge the people that I work with, but everybody don't have to go there. Some people don't want that out of this, right? right. Some people just right. want to do what they do and keep it moving. Man. Like that real woman record, what's challenging to me is I remember you telling me that uh, in order to clear the sample, we couldn't curse on the record. Exactly. Yeah. Which is which is beautiful. It was beautiful. It made me write different. Yeah, of course. It always does. I'm, yeah. Lil Wayne. Just, 
I remember watching his evolution, and for many years, he was doing very gangster, hardcore music, but he couldn't curse. His mother wouldn't allow him to curse for many right, years. Right. So in those first, if you go back and listen to those first Hot Boy albums, they're very gangster in tone, very aggressive in nature, but very PG. Right. Right. And that's what I, I told Babe. I said, "This kid's gonna be." Him. I said, "You realize." that there's a whole other level of vocabulary that he's not even accessing now, mm. but emotionally he can get across everything he needs to say. Wait until he gets to open the whole book mm -hmm. and say everything <laughs> right. like he wants to say. This kid's going to be a problem. Right, man. Right, man. And that's what's beautiful about this, this, this thing that we do is that you can go as far as you want to go if you want to go there. You know, I remember, you know, Clark Kent saying, you know, in the sneaker game, he was like, B, you ready to go there? I was like, no, nah, I go there. I got some pairs. I got some things like that. He was like, yeah, but it's a whole other side to this. Are you ready to go there? Right. And I had to think about that. I remember writing for Puff during the press play. I think you were doing those I sessions was too. On that session in too, Miami. Man. And I remember I wrote a song for Puff. And I was like, yo, I got the record. It's hot. He, was, he never got up out of the chair. He was like, is it though? And I was like, yeah, no, it's hot. And I'm like, it's crazy record. Right. Is it though? And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go back and listen yeah. to it again. <laughs> Right, and it was. I'm like, you know what? You gotta, you gotta <laughs> walk in the room with confidence. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like you man. Gotta be, you gotta be ready to go there. And the next record, I Fucking was like, puff. "Come on and do this." But that's, yeah. I'll never forget that. Word up. I'm better for that. Word up. And I'm better for knowing you too, Quavo. I'm, 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 a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm so appreciative that I have a relationship with you. you Likewise, know, that it's, it's, it's really influenced and inspired my career. And the same for you. Whenever I call you, you're right there. You know what I'm saying? And that's rare in this business. Well, we'll, we'll have friends, we'll have associates, but we'll have very few contemporaries. And that's what yeah. I feel like you are. Like, you're, you're an actual peer. Like, I feel like you perform on the same level that I perform on in terms of effort, mm. right? We, we don't always get what we're trying that's to do. That's a go, huge compliment, brother. But I feel like you try to give every... And that's in life, not just in music. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's why I stay close to you, because I feel like our, our paths are always going to be reflective, and you're going to go through this, I'm going to call you. I'm going to go through this. You're going to call me. But we're always going to be there, man. No doubt. It's good to have a friend like you, brother. You too, brother. <laughs> Bun B, ladies and gentlemen. Keep this party. That's how we doing it.